KPFA, KPFB, Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno. It's time now for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Tom Ross, who is the artistic director of Aurora Theatre Company in Berkeley and the director of the show currently playing, A Delicate Balance by Edward Albee. This is the 20th anniversary of Aurora. First, I want to start by talking a little bit about the current play because there seems to be a lot of interest right now in Edward Albee. There was a revival of Tiny Alice up at Marin Theatre Company a couple of years ago, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was around, and ACT a couple of years ago did the latest play, Peter and Jerry and Zoo Story. Correct. Am I wrong in that in terms of the, I guess you'd call them the most accessible, I'll be a delicate balance, and Virginia Woolf qualifies. There another that fits into that? Well, it depends what you mean by accessible, I guess. <laughs> we did Seascape, which he also won the Pulitzer for um, some years ago, but that's two humans talking to two lizards. <laughs> so that might not be quite, although it's kind of a normal seeming play, oddly enough. Certainly Virginia Woolf is his most famous play, primarily, I think, because, uh, not only because it's a great play, but because of the film with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, directed by Mike Nichols, which was a huge success. And uh, Delicate Balance is also very accessible because it's kind of I'll be doing a, uh, a riff on the, um, the old-fashioned drawing room kind of comedies. And in terms of that, how do you, how do you play it? Or do you, do you play it totally straight as you would any play? Um, yeah, you have to play totally straight. There are moments in the play that verge... In, well, Edward Albee is an absurdist. He's an American absurdist, the, of the absurd. Whereas in, in, in Europe, you would have Samuel Beckett, Ionesco. Um, Albee sort of picked up the mantle for American playwrights. It goes from um, very realistic, normal kind of chat to very surreal places. Sometimes lines just alternate that way. Like, there's a, an incredible line where uh, Agnes, the uh, the matron of the home, gives this beautiful kind of surreal speech about time happens, about going up to the hill with your sword and your shield, and you finally come across just dust and nothing. And then her very next line is, I'm sorry about the coffee, Edna. <laughs> so you have to just do it as though it's a film in a way, and you're just slicing uh, two different films together, but they just have to run together. Like, they're just everyday happenings. Now, Aurora has an interesting stage in that there are I think it's three or four four rows four, I rows, four yes. rows going three quarters of the way around the right. theater and you're looking down on the play right. in a normal proscenium play you kind of just look at the stage but in right. this case because it's so intimate you have to look in different directions sure. which almost brings up the idea that on some level, as a play director, you're also acting like a film editor. Uh, it's sort of like that. I, I sometimes describe it as playing three-dimensional chess or being a choreographer. Although everybody's going to see something a little different from what side you're sitting on, you want the story to be the same for all sides of the house. So there's a lot of a lot of movement you have to do in our plays. It, it gets tough sometimes if, let's say, you have a scene, uh, like Harold Pinter in particular, where there's just the two people sitting at a table talking face-to-face. 
And that's the point. They're looking at each other. You can't really do that at Aurora because the two people, if you're on the sides, you're just going to see the back of one guy or the back of the other person. So you've got to use a lot of tricks, tricks and movement. So you have to be very careful. I noticed that there were a couple of points for me where I, I have some hearing issues where I lost some stuff because somebody was just not facing me. You saw one of our first pre... I'm not sure which show you saw, but yeah. it was one of the very first shows. And I've got some actors in the show that have not performed in this space before. So that is something that we're working on. But I do want everybody to be able to hear everything. One of the tricks I tell the actors is, this came from Lynn Sofer, one of our great dialect coaches, that they have to sort of visualize what they're saying as a ball that's going out of their mouth and hitting the wall ahead of them and then bouncing back over their heads to the people behind. It sounds one way when I'm alone in the auditorium with the actors. When you put 150 people in there, it sucks up the sound. So they have to readjust themselves now for these big audiences that we've been getting. Do you ever go back and consider earlier productions like Kim Cronin and Jessica Tandy were in the original, then there was the movie version with Katherine Hepburn and Paul Schofield, right. and the 1996 revival, which featured Elaine Stritch in a role, Claire, that looks like it was written for Elaine Stritch, uh -huh. but wasn't. Uh -huh. One of the interesting things about these different productions you just mentioned, I did, did a little research. I, I, I had never seen A Delicate Balance performed on stage before, so I've, I've seen the film, um, but I hadn't seen the, the original, obviously, I was a little too young for that, and I didn't see the revival. Actually, I was living here when it happened in New York. The first production with uh, Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, they were both in their late 50s when they did the show. When it was done in uh, 96, I think it was revived, the ages went up considerably. So that Elaine Stritch, who plays the younger daughter, she was actually 71 years old at the time. So we've kind of gone back to the original, originals. All of my actors are more in their late 50s, early 60s. When you saw the Hepburn one, uh -huh. I mean, I could see at times... In terms of Kimberly, mm -hmm. I could see where she was trying to move as far away from Hepburn as possible because I hear the Hepburn rhythm in all these words uh -huh. on some level. Well, he said that it was a good thing that Agnes, the character that Catherine Hepburn played, was so similar to uh, what Catherine Hepburn does because she really wasn't acting. I mean, Catherine Hepburn kind of acts the same in everything, basically. Right. So those rhythms you're talking about, you've heard in a lot of films over the years. I'm not sure how many of the actors have seen the film or not, but where nobody's trying to imitate certainly anything in the film. Did you have any contact with Albie for this production? Yes, lots. Well, Edward Albee is an unusual playwright in that he really is involved with all professional productions. He controls the casting, the set designs, the costume designs, etc. Before I could get the rights to do the play, he had to approve the cast. How do I put a cast together where I don't even have the rights to the play? You know, So I had a, a group of actors in my head that I thought would be good together. I invited them all to come together at Aurora. We did a reading of the play to see how it went. Kimberly King and Ken Grantham both live, they're married, and they live near Seattle. So they actually came down to do the reading. I was really thrilled that everybody did. So what I had to do then was send their uh, their resumes and their headshots to Edward Albee for his approval, he got back to me and said, well, what are their actual ages? He wanted to know the real ages of everyone. We had to ask all the actors their ages, which was a little uncomfortable, but everybody, I guess, owned up. We sent him the ages, and then he said he wanted to see costume and set designs. So, once again, I did not have the rights to the play, but I had to hire a set and a costume designer to actually design what the production would be. When did all this happen? Because you're you're preparing for a new season, and you're preparing for this to be the first show in That's the season. Right. It was uh, probably... Uh, nine months ago. I mean, I'm, I'm already preparing for 2013 right now. And then what happened was, in the course of this, is I, I had originally cast an actress named Julia Brothers, 
to play the role of Claire, the alcoholic sister, and Edward had approved her. And then Julia got invited to uh, participate on Broadway uh, in a new Elaine May play that John Turturro is directing on Broadway. So, of course, she had to leave the cast to do that. So I had to find another actress to play her, that role, and uh, then I had to get Edward uh, to try to um, to approve her. And that was where it was getting a little scary, because that was only about two months ago. I understand some of the stage direction is in the play more so than other playwrights? Different, yeah, different playwrights do different different amounts of stage direction and description, like George Bernard Shaw, for example, is known for writing pages of description and, and everything. And this play, in particular, I would say virtually every line in this play has some notation of how it should be said. We want to honor that. You know, we have to do our own thing, but we certainly paid attention to that and honored it. You have said that you try to be loyal to the playwright yes. as much as you can. But it also means that you, you're not in a position to take even the most minor liberties. Well, in terms of blocking, you know, playwrights, when they conceive of a play, they conceive of it on a proscenium stage. Our stage is not that. So we can't necessarily do all that. I, I think we're pretty true to everything he said. There's a lot of pauses in the play, a lot of silences written into the play, same as Harold Pinter has. And um, we really try to honor all those things. I, I didn't feel like we were ever doing anything that was wrong by following what he thinks is right. What about where, at one point, Claire is at one end of the stage, or of the space, let's say, mm -hmm. and the couple who come to live with Agnes and Tobias are at the other. Uh -huh. Is that stage right, stage left, or up, down? There were several different versions of this play. I had four different versions of this play with me during rehearsals. There's the original printed, just the printed edition, and then there was an edition that was slightly changed for the revival in the 90s. And then there's the Samuel French acting edition, which is what you usually have the rights to. And there are a lot of stage directions in that, but those are not necessarily Edward Albee's stage directions. They were simply the stage directions that perhaps the revival did in the 90s. Um, we didn't feel compelled to follow Samuel French's stage directions, but we looked for Edward Albee's. His directions are more about the rhythms of a speech as opposed to really stage directions. For those people who don't know Albee, I mean, Tiny Alice is one of the weirdest things I've yeah. seen. <laughs> really strange. Uh -huh. I didn't expect it to be that strange. Uh -huh. And Delicate Balance, to that degree, is more in keeping with a, a show like uh, Virginia Woolf yeah. in that you can follow it. I think a Delicate Balance is a little more surreal than Virginia Woolf. But they both you know, involve uh, dead sons, you know, that are talked about a lot. A, lot, a number of people have said how, how similar the two plays seem to start to them with sort of a warring couple, although it's not as vicious in a delicate balance, the, the, the fighting. The people are much more, um, their vocabularies are a lot higher, and Agnes, I mean, talks in these, these Henry Jamesian paragraphs of speech, so it's a little more, uh, a little more polite than uh, the Virginia Woolf. Tom Ross, why did you choose Delicate Balance? Delicate Balance is one of my favorite plays, and it's a play I've wanted to do for a long time. What I've been saying, to the dismay of the actors, is I've been waiting for a group of actors to reach a certain age um, so that we could do that play. And also then I put that on myself, and I wait for myself to be a certain age as well, which is late 50s. Most of us are late 50s, early 60s in the cast. Even though Edward wrote it when he was 38 years old, youngish man, it's very definitely a play about life in your later years. I've been saying, look 
looking at that existential dead end and what your reactions are to that. I think he has remarkable insight into human beings that a 38-year-old could understand the feelings of people in their late 60s or whatever. I actually think it's his masterpiece. How does that compare, say, to directing eccentricities of a nightingale? The things that I see is that delicate balance is perfect in what it is, but eccentricities is more problematic because it's not a perfect play. Right. Well, one thing I like to do at Aurora where you have 150 seats, I don't have to worry about trying to sell a 1,000 seats, is I like to do the plays by famous playwrights like Tennessee Williams that you haven't seen. Worthy works that are flawed for some reason, or like the, the B-sides of the singles. I found um, Eccentricities a challenge. It was the first time I had directed Tennessee Williams, so that was a challenge right there, because his language is just so lush and poetic. And things he's writing about, particularly in that play, are so underneath the sadness of a spinster who has her creativity thwarted. I just tried to make it work the best that I could, and I, I thought it worked really nicely. Well, for me, seeing a play I would never have seen before, uh, a Tennessee Williams play, uh-huh. you know, kind of a, a later, less-known play, was kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, there were some there were some speeches that I might have liked to have cut down or rearranged in some way, but that's true of any play. I mean, there, there are very few perfect... I don't know if there is a perfect play... Tom Ross, let's talk a little about the theater company. It came together 20 years ago. There are two stories that seem to conflict. One is that you answered an ad, and the other is that the theater company came together to produce a play called Dear Master by Dorothy Bryant. Mm-hmm. What's the real story there? Well, the story is is that Barbara Oliver started the company. She did a production of the play called Dear Master by local writer Dorothy Bryant, uh, featuring Ken Grantham and Barbara, doing a play about Flaubert and Georges Sand at the Berkeley City Club. And it was a success. But it wasn't called Aurora Theatre Company then. It was a group of theater artists getting together to put on a one-time production. And Barbara was so uh, encouraged by the success of that that she decided to start a theater company called Aurora Theatre Company, which is named after Georges Sand whose name is Aurora, first name. That's when she put the ad in, in Theater Bay Area magazine uh, looking for a general manager. So I applied for that ad. I moved here a few months before, and I was producing on my own and directing on my own and that stuff. And like a lot of theater artists, there's not a lot of money in it, so you've got to juggle a lot of balls and do a lot of jobs. So Aurora Theater Company actually started with our first season, which was uh, Canada by George Bernard Shaw, Charles Dean in a solo show called Mia Culpa Chuck Connors, and then Barbara and her husband Bill appeared in The Gin Game. And that's when it actually became Aurora. So it wasn't Aurora Theater Company in the first production. They didn't have a name. So I think that's where the confusion comes in. And what relationship did Ken Grantham, who's now Tobias, what relationship did he have to that? We have a group of founders which came out of the Dear Master show. Ken played Flaubert. Richard Rossi directed the show. Dorothy Bryant wrote it. Barbara was in it. And Marge Glicksman was our props person. So those people are our founders. We did other plays by Dorothy Bryant over the years. Um, Barbara directed and acted in a number of shows. Marge was our props person for a lot of the shows. Ken and Kimberly appeared, I think, in one other show for us. But when I went in for my job interview with Barbara, Ken and Barbara both interviewed me. So that's how I met Ken. I had come from the public theater where I worked for Joe Papp for eight years. I was four years, I was his executive assistant. And then he decided I was too creative for that job, and he moved me over to plays and musicals development. So I did that for four years. And what was happening at the public is that Joe had cancer, and he was dying, and he was starting to plan um, his successor and how that would work. And he finally came up with the decision that he would hire Joanne Acolytus, who was an avant-garde theater director, to sort of be an overseer. And then I, I keep saying it's King Lear-like. He's dividing up his 
Kingdom, uh, there were a number of theaters within the public. So I gave one theater to Michael Greif, the director, one theater to George Wolfe, and one theater to David Greenspan. I was sort of like, what is my job going to be? I didn't see this as a workable situation. He was a very important person to me. I had no professional theater experience at all until he hired me. He really took a leap of faith on me, very much a father figure. And I couldn't really say to him, um, Mr. Papp, I'm going to leave and, and take another job in New York City for another producer or whatever. I also felt really ripe to start producing on my own. But I could say to him, Mr. Papp, I'm moving to California. That was like a different way to go. I had lived here in 1979 for a year, running Brentano's Bookstore on Sutter Street. My first job in New York was at Brentano's on Fifth Avenue. Had a number of positions there. They transferred me out here to the West Coast to manage that store and then become the West Coast Regional Manager of Brentano's. And I was out here for a year, and I really missed New York. I wanted to get back. But I always thought I'd come back to the Bay Area at some point when I got a little bit older. At that time, I was developing rock musicals a lot. I did a rock musical with Todd Rundgren um, based on a Joe Wharton screenplay that he'd written for the Beatles. Uh, I'd been working with Ian Anderson of Death Row Tall to turn um, Thick as a Brick into a show. Uh, Pete Townsend, I was on the phone with him about Tommy. Uh, I was trying to get Kate Bush to write a musical. So I was kind of a rock musical guy. And the Bay Area, of course, is such a great musical town. And I was a little too young to be a hippie. Jefferson Airplane is like one of my favorite bands of all time. And so the idea of coming to back to the Bay Area to develop rock musicals, I thought, made a lot of sense. Which you haven't done. But Well, I got here and I realized I was crazy because I have no, I'm not a rich guy. They are the most expensive things in the world to try to produce. So I just started doing like all these other gigs. I knew a lot of solo performers in New York. They were friends of mine, like Eric Bogosian, David Kale, Reno. So I started producing solo performers here. I got involved with um, Solo Mio Festival here, did that for eight years with the Life on the Water and Climate people. So there was this ad that Barbara had. It was just like another gig, another possibility. And, and I always remember the interview was at night, was at the City Club, which is, of course, the beautiful Julia Morgan little castle there. And it was Christmas time. And so the Christmas trees out and the birds tweeting in the place. And, and maybe 8.30 at night, I didn't really know Berkeley very well. And Barbara comes out, you know, a, a little lady with all the white hair. And she said, we'll be with you in just a moment. And she just disappeared back into the, the darkness of the city club. And I remember standing out there thinking, how the mighty have fallen. What in the heck am I doing here from the largest not-for-profit theater in the United States to this? But we hit it off really well. It was magic from day one. I had a great time, and 20 years later, I'm still here. You're listening to an interview with Tom Ross, who's the artistic director of Aurora Theater. Tom Ross, how did you go from books to theater? I was always into theater. I don't know why, because neither of my parents ever saw a play in their life or took me to see a play. I started writing plays when I was really, really young. Where'd you grow up? Uh, suburbs of Chicago. My father worked. Uh, was a hard hat, worked at U.S. Steel in Gary, Indiana. My mom was a homemaker. Uh, no one in my extended family had ever gone to college. So I wasn't a super cultural environment, but I just was into the idea of acting in theater. When I was in high school... I was taken out of regular school as a gifted student and put on a, an independent study program where I started writing plays. And I could choose whatever grade I wanted for any of my classes, take the regular classes or not. Uh, I had an acting scholarship at Illinois State to be an actor. Uh, I was maybe there six months, and I realized I really did not want to be an actor. I was writing plays and poetry. Uh, I was published, po a little bit of a published poet in small poetry journals and stuff like that. Uh, I always wanted to move to New York. It was like San Francisco, a great mythological town that I had to be in. I'd worked in the steel mill with my dad. I'd saved up $2,000. Uh, I remember my hair was down to my shoulders. So as soon as I graduated college, I uh, got on a train. I didn't know anybody in New York City. My parents took me to the train station, and I just started a life in New York, got a job at Brentano's. How did the PAP 
thing happened then? You went back to New York after being out here for a yes. year. And I went back to New York, and I got a job with a company called Photofolio, which was a mom-and-pop company in Soho. And then I had a friend who worked at the public theater, and she said, how'd you like to work for Joe Papp? And I said, well, God, of course I'd like to work for Joe Papp. So I had to go through a series of four interviews before I met him. He was the fifth interview. What I thought I was going to do was like make sure he knew I was a playwright. Now, I'd never had a play produced, but I was you know writing plays. And anyway, he, he offered me the job. What were some of the uh, well-known productions that you worked on there? I think the, the play that I'm most proudest of was The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer. I was the first person to get that play. It came in a box, a huge box. And at the time, Larry was, well, still is, a, a big anti-AIDS activist. He was very much a troublemaker, going to big parties and throwing wine in people's faces and stuff like that. And he really wanted to get in to see Joe. And we were all trying to sort of keep him away. But I got this box, which actually, a whole box, I mean, the play became, what was in that box became two plays. It was The Normal Heart and then the sequel, The Destiny of Me. But at the time, it was this big opus. And started reading that and realized how important it was. And so we got it to Joe, and the rest is history. We, it was like really the first... Uh, well, there was one other play, uh, AIDS play produced before it, but it was a really major deal. It was about the bureaucracy of what was going on, that nobody wanted to talk about it, and people were, it was, it was a very political play. And, and it named a lot of names. And Ed Koch was severely damaged in that play too. And so, a lot of, before that play could be produced, we had to take it to attorneys, and they really poured over to see what we could be sued for and what we couldn't be. And some, we had to do some changes to make sure we didn't get sued. Were there any other plays that went on to great success that you were involved with? Pirates of Penzance with Linda Ronstant and Kevin Klein was a huge success during that period. The Mystery of Edwin Drood went to Broadway while I was there. I wasn't a super, super fan of that particular show. Uh, Chorus Line was running during that entire time I was there, and one of my jobs was any time Joe Papp would get a letter from somebody who saw it on Broadway that thought it wasn't sparkling or there was something wrong about it, he'd say, Tom, go and check out the show. So I'd have to see you know, Chorus Line every month or so to write him reports on that. That play actually supported the whole, th really supported of the theater, all the money we made off of that. When did Aurora get its own theater? Ten years ago. Uh, right around the time the Rota was being built is when we moved to Addison Street. Did you work with the city on, on being able to create this kind of theater row? Yeah, well, my understanding is that Berkeley Rep received some money from Berkeley to be the cornerstone of an arts district. So the idea was to start an arts district up on that street. Uh, we were probably the only other financially solvent theater company <laughs> in Berkeley at that time that could possibly have made a move. You know, coming from New York, I really wanted to be on that street. I love the synergy of being next Store to Berkeley Rep, and of course the jazz school on the other side. Now we got the freight. Now that's ten years ago. I don't remember all the details exactly, but the city did give us some funding, particularly for you know earthquake retrofitting, and because that was a big block in moving into that building. And then they gave us a loan, which we're paying back. Uh, I noticed in looking at your website two unusual elements. One is equal pay for equity and non-equity actors. Mm -hmm. I think we're pretty unusual doing that. From day one, we were a professional actor's equity theater company. So there are rules for that, and one of them is minimum wage that an actor would get. Also, they get pension and health. I thought it was kind of crazy to start an equity theater company in a 67-seat room. I don't know if there are any equity theaters that are that small, because you've got to make a certain amount of money to be paying people at these wage levels, and pension and health particularly, all important things. 
But Barbara was an equity actor, and that's what she wanted. And pretty much from day one, we had really good act- Like, we had Kimberly King and Ken Grantham in our very fr- or Kimberly in our first show. And I, a lot of that, I think, comes from Barbara, the fact that Barbara was well-known and respected, had acted with a lot of these people. So we had a lot of credibility with actors from day one. And also, Barbara knew something which I didn't, which is how to make backstage life comfortable for actors. A lot of theaters don't think about that, to make sure that everybody's costumes are washed appropriately and dry you know everything's there's a dresser backstage to help people so we had some uh, kind of luxuries i guess for a 67th seat theater at the time the other thing i noticed is that i mean okay there's less expensive rush tickets Uh and i would assume that there are probably some discounts but you also give free tickets and previews to low-income seniors and students yeah since day one since our first production we always had a, um, a free preview for low-income seniors. We've done that for every show. I, I got to just say this last Saturday, it's about six different groups. I don't know who all the groups are. Um, some are from Berkeley, but they're all East Bay. This Saturday at 2 o'clock was our senior preview. I almost started tearing up because I was told that they wanted to talk to me before the show started. And, and I went out there, and they had raised money, so almost $600, with checks for everybody, wrote little checks and stuff like that. And uh, it was just a really touching thing. Now, Berkeley Rep has a definite political slant. Uh, so does ACT. Do you look in those terms as well? Well, I don't know what the political slants are necessarily that you're talking about, but I, I mean, I think most people in theater have a political slant and that we're liberals pretty much, right? So I guess that would be the political slant. But I, one of the things I like to do is not, if I do do political work, I don't like it to be patting ourselves on the back political work because that's boring. I would like to be challenging liberals or the Berkeley liberals as much as, as let's say, right-wing people, for example. I don't think we have any agenda at the Aurora except to do the best work we possibly can. Have you ever thought about doing Normal Heart, or have you done it? I thought about doing Normal Heart. It's too big for us. The biggest cast size we can possibly have is eight. But Normal Heart is definitely a play I would like to do if it had a smaller cast. The rest of the season, The Soldier's Tale, which is a dance collaboration... Uh, Muriel is, has been a longtime fan of Aurora, and she approached me about this idea of doing the Stravinsky piece. I didn't really know it. I mean, I heard of it, but I didn't really know it very well. And she did a wonderful presentation for me. It's with a life-sized puppet. She's going to be the puppeteer on stage, so she'll be on stage all the time. And then there's a uh, daughter of the king. She doesn't like being called a princess. There's a daughter of the king that appears at the end that does three dances. So Muriel's going to be dancing on our stage. I mean, it was just too kind of delicious not to want to do and for our 20th anniversary I thought it would be a kind of a really cool uh, remarkably interesting unique thing for us to do Body Awareness by Annie Baker. Yes, Annie Baker is a, uh, that's part of our Global Age project this year, uh, which is about plays about life in the 21st century and beyond. I thought it'd be great for Berkeley because it's very much uh, about the academic world, and it's very funny. Annie Baker has not been done here yet in the Bay Area, so I think it's a great way to introduce her. Anatole by Arthur Schnitzler, new translation. Yeah. A couple years back, I directed Marius by Pagnol, which was translated by Zach Rogo, and we were at Black Oak Books, actually, at some some kind of an event, and I met Margaret Schaefer, who is a translator of Schnitzler. And I didn't know that much about Schnitzler. I know Le Ronde, that's kind of it. 
She had done some translations for New York off-Broadway theaters of his work, which I read. They were very elegant. And so we've been talking for a while about doing schnitzler. So I've, we've commissioned her to do our own translation of Anatole. Uh, the play is about a, a young Casanova named Anatole, a middle-aged Casanova named Anatole, and his relationship with seven different women. Seven different scenes. So you see this guy with seven different women. They're all going to be played by the same actress. And Barbara Oliver's coming back to direct that for us. Finally, uh, Salomania. This is a, my first commission, actually, of a play. And uh, Mark directed Salome by Oscar Wilde for us um, a few seasons ago. And when he was researching that play, he came across a woman named Maud Allen. Her life mirrors Oscar Wilde's in a very interesting way from a sort of a feminist point of view. And it's about propaganda. It's about wartime hysteria. It's sort of about the way now that uh, people get preoccupied with what Lindsay Lohan is doing right now, as opposed to what's actually happening in the world. Tom Ross, are you just planning to stay put, or are you planning to do any acting or directing film? You know, I'm thinking about what I should be doing, and because uh, I've been here 20 years, but I'm thoroughly enjoying myself. I find the theater and the theater community here to be a lot of fun. Uh, every day I go into work in a good mood, I think. So I, I, I'm thinking of other projects to do. I think they're more like writing projects. All right, and I'd like to also probably do some directing outside of the theater as well. You've been listening to an interview with Tom Ross, who is the artistic director of Aurora Theater in Berkeley. For more information, you can go to auroratheater.org. I believe Delicate Balance is playing at Aurora through October 9th. That's correct. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. September 10th at 11 a.m., Bill McKibben, world-renowned environmentalist, author, and journalist, talk about building a global and local movement to solve the climate crisis. Bill will describe the international grassroots effort to challenge the power of the fossil fuel industry and show how local action fits into this planetary challenge. Tickets are $15 general, $12 Peace Center members, and $5 students. Wheelchair accessible. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. This event benefits the Mount Diablo Peace and Justice Center. The event will be held at Mount Diablo Unitarian Universalist Church, 55 Eckley Lane, Walnut Creek. More information on mtdpc.org or call 925-933-7850. KPFA, KPFB Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno.